Vienna. Strange and unusual stories from history, literature, myths, and legends. Diplomacy by Lafcadio Hearn from Quaidon. It had been ordered that the execution should take place in the garden of the Yashiki. So the man was taken there and made to kneel down in a wide, sanded space, crossed by a line of tobiishi, or stepping stones, such as may still see in Japanese landscape gardens. His arms were bound behind him. Retainers brought water in buckets and rice bags filled with pebbles, and they packed the rice bags round the kneeling man, so wedging him in that he could not move. The master came and observed the arrangements. He found them satisfactory and made no remarks. Suddenly, a condemned man cried out to him, Honored sir, the fault for which I have been doomed I did not wittingly commit. It was only my very great stupidity which caused the fault. Having been born stupid by reason of my karma, I could not always help making mistakes. But to kill a man for being stupid is wrong, and that wrong will be repaid. So surely as you kill me, so surely shall I be avenged. Out of the resentment that you provoke will come the vengeance, and evil will be rendered for evil. If any person be killed while feeling strong resentment, the ghost of that person will be able to take vengeance upon the killer. This the samurai knew. He replied very gently, almost caressingly. We shall allow you to frighten us as much as you please, after you are dead. But it is difficult to believe that you mean what you say. Will you try to give us some sign of your great resentment after your head has been cut off? Assuredly I will, answered the man. Very well, said the samurai, drawing his long sword. I am now going to cut off your head. Directly in front of you there is a stepping stone. After your head has been cut off, try to bite the stepping stone. If your angry ghost can help you to do that, some of us may be frightened. Will you try to bite the stone? I will bite it, cried the man in great anger. I will bite it! I will bite! There was a flash, a swish, a crunching thud. The bound body bowed over the rice sacks, two long blood jets pumping from the shorn neck, and the head rolled upon the sand. Heavily towards the stepping stone it rolled. Then, suddenly bounding, it caught the upper edge of the stone between its teeth, clung desperately for a moment, and dropped inert. None spoke. But the retainers stared in horror at their master. He seemed to be quite unconcerned. He merely held out his sword to the nearest attendant who, with a wooden dipper, poured water over the blade from half to point, and then carefully wiped the steel several times with sheets of soft paper, and thus ended the ceremonial part of the incident. For months thereafter, the retainers and the domestics lived in ceaseless fear of ghostly visitation. None of them doubted that the promised vengeance would come, 
and their constant terror caused them to hear and to see much that did not exist. They became afraid of the sound of the wind in the bamboos, afraid even of the stirring of shadows in the garden. After taking counsel together, they decided to petition their master to have a sagaki service performed on behalf of the vengeful spirit. Quite unnecessary, the samurai said when his chief retainer had uttered the general wish. I understand that the desire of a dying man for revenge may be a cause for fear, but in this case, there is nothing to fear. The retainer looked at his master beseechingly, but hesitated to ask the reason of this alarming confidence. Oh, the reason is simple enough, declared the samurai, divining the unspoken doubt. Only the very last intention of that fellow could have been dangerous. And when I challenged him to give me the sign, I diverted his mind from the desire of revenge. He died with the set purpose of biting the stepping stone, and that purpose he was able to accomplish, but nothing else. All the rest he must have forgotten. So you need not feel any further anxiety about the matter. And indeed, the dead man gave no more trouble. Nothing at all happened. Ricky Baca, from the book Quiet On, by Lafcadio Hearn. His name was Ricky, signifying strength, but the people called him Ricky the Simple, or Ricky the Fool, Ricky Baca, because he had been born into perpetual childhood. For the same reason they were kind to him, even when he set a house on fire by putting a lighted match to a mosquito curtain, and clapped his hands for joy to see the blaze. At 16 years, he was a tall, strong lad. But in mind, he remained always at the happy age of two, and therefore continued to play with very small children. The bigger children of the neighborhood, from four to seven years old, did not care to play with him, because he could not learn their songs and games. His favorite toy was a broomstick, which he used as a hobby horse, and for hours at a time, he would ride on that broomstick up and down the slope in front of my house, with amazing peals of laughter. But at last he became troublesome by reason of the noise, and I had to tell him that he must find another playground. He bowed submissively and then went off, sorrowfully trailing his broomstick behind him, gentle at all times and perfectly harmless if allowed no chance to play with fire. He seldom gave anybody cause for complaint. His relation to the life of our street was scarcely more than that of a dog or a chicken. And when he finally disappeared, I did not miss him. Months and months passed before anything happened to remind me of Ricky. What has become of Ricky? I then asked the old woodcutter, who supplies our neighborhood with fuel. I remembered that Ricky had often helped him to carry his bundles. Ricky Baca, answered the old man. Ah, Ricky is dead, poor fellow. Yes, he died nearly a year ago, very suddenly. The doctors said that he had some disease of the brain. And there is a strange story now about that poor Ricky. 
When Ricky died, his mother wrote his name, Ricky Baca, in the palm of his left hand, putting Ricky in the Chinese character and Baca in Kana. And she repeated many prayers for him, prayers that he might be reborn into some more happy condition. Now, about three months ago, in the honorable residence of Nanigashi-sama in Kojimaki, a boy was born with characters on the palm of his left hand, and the characters were quite plain to read. Ricky Baca. So the people of that house knew that the birth must have happened in answer to somebody's prayer, and they caused inquiry to be made everywhere. At last, the vegetable seller brought word to them that there used to be a simple lad, called Ricky Baca, living in the Ushigomi quarter and that he had died during the last autumn. And they sent two men-servants to look for the mother of Ricky. Those servants found the mother of Ricky and told her what had happened. And she was glad exceedingly, for the Nanigashi house is a very rich and famous house. But the servants said that the family of Nanigashi-sama were very angry about the word baka on the child's hand. And where is your Ricky buried, the servants asked. He is buried in the cemetery of Zendoji, she told them. Please to give us some of the clay of his grave, they requested. So she went with them to the temple Zendoji and showed them Ricky's grave. And they took some of the grave clay away with them, wrapped in a furoshiki. They gave Ricky's mother some money, 10 yen. But what did they want with that clay, I inquired. Well, the old man answered, you know that it would not do to let the child grow up with that name on his hand, and there was no other means of removing characters that come in that way upon the body of a child. You must rub the skin with clay taken from the grave of the body of the former birth. Fragment from In Ghostly Japan by Lafcadio Hearn And it was at the hour of sunset that they came to the foot of the mountain. There was in that place no sign of life, neither token of water, nor trace of plant, nor shadow of flying bird. Nothing but desolation rising to desolation, and the summit was lost in heaven. Then the Bodhisattva said to his young companion, What you have asked to see will be shown to you, but the place of vision is far, and the way is rude. Follow after me, and do not fear. Strength will be given you. Twilight gloomed about them as they climbed. There was no beaten path, nor any mark of former human visitation. And the way was over an endless heaping of tumbled fragments that rolled or turned beneath the foot. Sometimes a mass dislodged would clatter down with hollow echoings. Sometimes the substance trodden would burst like an empty shell. Stars pointed and thrilled, and the darkness deepened. Do not fear, my son, said the Bodhisattva, guiding. Danger there is none though the way be grim. Under the stars they climbed, fast, fast, 
mounting by help of power superhuman. High zones of mist they passed, and they saw below them, ever widening as they climbed, a soundless flood of cloud like the tide of a milky sea. Hour after hour they climbed, and forms invisible yielded to their tread with dull, soft crashings, and faint, cold fires lighted and died at every breaking. And once the pilgrim youth laid hand on something smooth that was not stone, and lifted it, and dimly saw the cheekless gibe of death. Linger not thus, my son, urged the voice of the teacher. The summit that we must gain is very far away. On through the dark they climbed, and felt continually beneath them the soft, strange breakings, and saw the icy fires worm and die, till the rim of the night turned gray, and the stars began to fail, and the east began to bloom. Yet still they climbed, fast, fast, mounting by help of power superhuman. About them now was frigidness of death and silence tremendous. A gold flame kindled in the east. Then, first to the pilgrim's gaze, the steeps revealed their nakedness, and a trembling seized him, and a ghastly fear. For there was not any ground, neither beneath him, nor about him, nor above him, but a heaping only, monstrous and measureless, of skulls and fragments of skulls and dust of bone, with a shimmer of shed teeth strewn throughout the drift of it, like the shimmer of scrags of shell in the rack of a tide. Do not fear, my son, cried the voice of the Bodhisattva. Only the strong of heart can win to the place of the vision. Behind them the world had vanished. Nothing remained but the clouds beneath and the sky above and the heaping of skulls between, upslanting out of sight. Then the sun climbed with the climbers, and there was no warmth in the light of him, but coldness, sharp as a sword, and the horror of stupendous height, and the nightmare of stupendous depth, and the terror of silence ever grew and grew and weighed upon the pilgrim and held his feet, so that suddenly all power departed from him, and he moaned like a sleeper in dreams. Hasten, hasten, my son, cried the Bodhisattva. The day is brief, and the summit is very far away. But the pilgrim shrieked, I fear, I fear unspeakably, and the power has departed from me. The power will return, my son, made answer the Bodhisattva. Look now below you, and above you, and about you, and tell me what you see. I cannot, cried the pilgrim, trembling and clinging. I dare not look beneath. Before me and about me there is nothing but skulls of men. And yet, my son, said the Bodhisattva, laughing softly, and yet you do not know what this mountain is made. The other, shuddering, repeated, I fear, unutterably I fear, there is nothing but skulls of men. A mountain of skulls it is, responded the Bodhisattva. But know, my son, that all of them are your own. Each has at some time been the nest of your dreams and illusions and desires. 
Not every one of them is the skull of any other being. All, all without exception, have been yours in the billions of your former lives. Mafkadi O'Hearn, Bio. Mafkadi O'Hearn was born in 1850 on the Greek island of Lafkatha, modern-day Lafkas. His father was British Army Surgeon Major Charles Hearn, stationed in the Greek islands during the era of the British Protectorate. His mother was Rosa Kazamati, a Greek woman from the island of Kathira. The marriage was over by the time Lafkadio was six years old, and despite the fact that both parents were still alive, he was sent to live with his aunt Sarah Bernane, who was at that time a fairly well-off widow. And Sarah had homes in both Ireland and Wales, and it was here that Lafcadia would spend his early childhood. In the early years, under his aunt's guardianship, Lafcadia lived a privileged life. He initially had tutors, but Aunt Sarah thought Hearn required a sterner hand and sent him to be schooled at the Institution Ecclesiastique in France. Hearn hated the school but became fluent in French, which served him well with his many translations of French authors later in life. A few years later, Hearn was sent to St. Cuthbert's College in England, another religious school, where he did very well in English composition, planting the seeds for his future writing career. It was here at the age of 16 that Hearn lost the use of his left eye due to a schoolyard accident. Shortly after that, Hearn's life of privilege came to an end. Aunt Sarah, who had become infirm with age, and her financial manager, Henry Molyneux, went bankrupt, and there was no money left for tuition, nor, apparently, to take care of Lafcadio. He was sent to live with Sarah's ex-maid for a time, and then shipped off to America at the suggestion of Molyneux. The plan, if there was one, was for Hearn to go to Cincinnati to live with Molyneux's sister and brother-in-law. But when he arrived, he really couldn't provide much help and sent him away. After living rough and doing meal work for food and lodging, Hearn eventually stumbled into writing through the help and support of the printer Henry Watkin. Watkin gave Hearn a place to live, employment opportunities, and access to a large library. Lafcadia was encouraged to write after Watkin found that he had a talent for it. He started to contribute articles to some of the works that Watkin printed, and things developed from there. Hearn eventually became a popular columnist specializing in sensational crime stories while writing for the Cincinnati Daily Inquirer. Hearn married his first wife, Alethea Foley, a formerly enslaved African-American woman, in 1874. Maddie, as she was commonly called, had been the cook at the boarding house Hearn was living at. He was 23 and she was 20. According to many accounts, Alethea was a gifted storyteller. The author, Monique Truong, who wrote a fictionalized account of Hearn's life called The Sweetest Fruits, identifies Alethea with the narrator of a series of eerie and atmospheric stories Hearn wrote for the Cincinnati commercial. The narrator is described as being a boarding house cook, a ghost seer, a person of enthralling charm, with a low, soft, and melodic voice. Sounds like she would have been a great narrator for an Ambient Arcana episode. Hearn was fired from the Inquirer, having run afoul of Ohio's anti-miscegenation laws, 
as well as having earned the ire of various politicians and religious leaders with some of his more acerbic writings. Hearn quickly found employment at the rival paper, the Cincinnati Commercial, increasing that paper's circulation as readers followed him there. It was at the commercial that Hearn started running stories about the poor and dispossessed of Cincinnati's predominantly black Bucktown and Levy neighborhoods, leaving a historic record of the people of Cincinnati whose stories were seldom told. The marriage of Alethea and Lafcadia was often rocky, and they eventually divorced in 1877. Alethea would eventually remarry in 1880, although she would try to make a claim on Lafcadia's estate after his death. Her claim was rejected by the courts. Having grown tired of life in Cincinnati, Hearn made his way to New Orleans in 1877. He initially worked for the Daily City Item, where he added both book reviews of international authors as well as his own woodcut illustrations, making the Daily City Item the first southern paper to be illustrated with cartoons. In 1881, Hearn started working as an editor at the Times Democrat translating items from French and Spanish newspapers, as well as writing editorials and stories about New Orleans cuisine, Creole culture, the French opera, and voodoo. In 1885, Hearn even published a book called La Cuisine Creole, which is one of the first collections of Louisiana and New Orleans recipes. Hearn had started to translate the current French authors into English during his last years in Cincinnati, and he redoubled his efforts in New Orleans. His own writing style is influenced by these French authors, and the translation and reinterpretation of French into English must have been good practice for Hearn's later work, interpreting Japanese ghost stories and literature into English. The difference here was that Hearn was fluent in French and never really became fluent in Japanese. Hearn would sometimes write for Harper's Magazine, and in 1887, Harper sent him to the West Indies as a correspondent. He spent two years in Martinique, and along with his writing for Harper's, he also wrote two books, Two Years in the French West Indies and Yuma, the Story of a West Indian Slave, both published in 1890. In 1890, Hearn traveled to Japan as a correspondent for Harper's, writing an article on a strip called A Winter's Journey to Japan. He didn't stay in the magazine's employ for long, but did continue to write and publish articles in various Western newspapers and magazines on life in Japan, which would later be collected in the book Glimpses of Unfamiliar Japan. Hearn found that he couldn't afford to continue living in Japan by freelance writing alone. So, at the suggestion of a friend, he started teaching English in Matsui, a town on the western coast of Japan. It was here that Hearn would meet his second wife, his literary collaborator, and the mother of his children, Kuizumi Setsuku. Setsuko was born in 1868 and came from a respectable samurai family that had come down a bit in the world. The Meiji Restoration, also occurring in 1868, had removed the government stipend for samurai families like hers. She had been a gifted student in her youth, but due to the family's loss of income, she had to forgo a higher education. Setsuko had been married at the age of 18, but the marriage ended in the husband abandoning her. The marriage became officially annulled the year she met Lafcadio. Setsuko grew up listening to old stories, folk tales, and legends from elder relatives and family friends, and it was these stories that Lafcadio would later write about in his various works on Japanese folklore, such as In Ghostly Japan, 
Shadowings, and his best-known work in the West, Kwaidan. Hearn was 40 when he married the 22-year-old Setsuko. To some extent, it would seem the marriage started out as something of an arranged affair. Hearn didn't speak Japanese, Setsuko didn't speak English. He had an urgent need to understand Japan, and she needed stability as a recently divorced woman. The marriage seems to have been suggested by a mutual friend, and it may have started as a friendship, but despite the odds, it seems they did grow to love one another. Hearn even took his wife's family name, Koizumi, when he became a Japanese citizen. He took the name Yakumo as his personal name, which means Nine Clouds, and it is by the name Koizumi Yakumo that he is known to Japanese readers today. Together, Setsuko and Yakumo would have four children, the descendants of whom still live in Japan. Yakumo and Setsuko would communicate in their own special mix of simple Japanese and simple English. Setsuko would tell him stories from folktales and literature, both ancient and modern, over and over again until he grasped their meaning. Having internalized the stories told him by Setsuko, he would then write them out in English. Along with interpreting Japanese tales, Hearn would write about life in Japan, his students, and, oddly enough, insects and the natural world. Setsuko once described how she and the children often reported to Hearn at the whereabouts of yellow butterfly, a mound of ants, frogs on hedges, early to bloom cherry blossoms, or how a young bamboo sprout raised its head from the earth. Until the end of his life, matters like those had great importance in our household, Setsuko wrote. They were a great delight for my husband. Hearn became the professor of English literature at the Imperial University of Tokyo between the years of 1896 to 1903. This was his most productive period when he produced his best-known works. However, he began to feel a bit stifled at the university and was either let go or quit in 1903. By that time, his books had gained popularity in the West, which provided him with a good income, and he had offers to teach from other schools as well, both in Japan and abroad. Hearn had been planning a trip to the U.S. to lecture at Cornell in 1904, but fate intervened. Hearn died at the age of 54 in 1904 of heart failure. Hearn is remembered and revered today in Greece, Ireland, France, the U.S., and, of course, Japan. For a man who never felt quite at home anywhere, it's impressive that so many countries lay claim to his legacy. All music and audio production by Bob Familiar. Narration by Bob Familiar, Rick Widener, and Jim Bilbro. This has been Ambient Arcana. Ambient Arcana.